The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be picking up in Mark chapter 3, somewhere about in verse 20. Mark 3 and verse 20, of course, you may remember from a couple of three weeks ago, we were discussing the choosing of Jesus' disciples and kind of what went into that, of course, how he made those choices. We made reference to the fact that he did not choose them out of nowhere. He selected these out of those who were already his disciples and therefore he would make them apostles or send those out. He numbered them among the twelve. However, we also understand that whatever Jesus did, He would also call upon the Father for approval and for connection for that, and He had done so apparently in that case. And of course, we numbered those out. We went through a little bit about each one of them. A few of the characteristics we listed, there were a couple charts. I put them on back tables. If you want to pick one of those up, they're probably still there. There were about 10 or 15 copies of that at least last I looked, and so you can grab those. Uh, if you want to say that more in your own time. The main point of this, no matter who he chose, is the fact that he chose right. And he chose those men in such a way as that they might do his work, not only while he was with them on earth, but then obviously after he left this earth and continue on. And then we stand upon their shoulders today doing a very similar work, not with the miraculous means that they had access to, obviously, but by the way that we continue to carry the gospel We do much the same. Now, if you look in your Bibles down in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20, actually verse 20 and 21 are some couple of three verses that seem a little bit disconnected from the context. I really do think they go up with the preceding context. And of course, that goes all the way back over around verse 7 or 8-ish and then comes down up into the point of verses 19, 20, and 21. But after the selection of those disciples, verse 20 says, "...and the multitude coming together again..." so that they could not so much as eat bread. I think that's more than likely a reference back into verse 9 of the third chapter, which said this, and he spake unto his disciples, that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. Of course, Jesus' popularity was at a height at this point. Uh, Some of that popularity was because of exactly what he was doing, what he was preaching. I'm sure there were plenty of those among that group that did that. But there were also those among that group who were just coming to him simply for the healing. We know about that not just from this account, but really all the gospel accounts to some extent revealed that. And some of the greatest miracles he did, particularly some of the uh, most effective miracles as far as affecting a multitude of people like the feeding of five, four thousand and, and seven in one case. All of those cases we had those that did not understand the spiritual connection of that. But nonetheless, it says the multitude continued to come again, which he knew would happen. And they came to him so much as that I will assume it refers to him and his disciples could not so much as eat bread. And then verse 21 that carries on, kind of that same vein says, And when his friends heard of it, they went out and laid hold of him that they said, He is beside himself. Now, in talking about him being beside himself, we also reference that, that that really covers the whole context. Everything that Mark has listed up into this point from chapter 1, the very beginning of this, everything that he's done, whether it be by word or by his works, his wonders, if you will, they look at him, some of those people around him looked at him and said, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. He's lost his mind. He's not in the right mind, as we might say it, or they would say here, as King James speak at least says, he's beside himself. 
He's not acting like he needs to act. Now, it's very difficult to, to determine, and you can look at a number of translations. I know many of you are looking at kind of a digital copy on your phone or tablet or what have you. If not here, you may do that at home quite a bit in your studies. It's very, very hard to determine who it was that said this about him. It very well may be the fact, and likely I would argue that it might be. I wouldn't say argue. I would assume that it may be the fact that those who said he's beside himself could have even been among his friends or even his family. And if you want a little bit of reference to that, at least for me in my Bible, it goes right across the page right here. I'm sure it doesn't line up for you. But there in verse 20 when that statement, or 21 when that statement is made, it connects over to what is said just a little bit over in that when later his family would come and they would come to him. And of course, Jesus would present the fact that, look, these family members that are outside the door waiting on me. Uh, they're not the main brothers and sisters, the brethren that I am concerned with right now. And he would make reference, of course, to his disciples, to his apostles about that. He would even turn in verse 34 of Mark 3 and said this phrase here. He looked around about him and, and that they that sat with him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. And probably pointed at those apostles or many of those disciples at least that were alongside of him. But whether or not that is the case, we do know that it was his physical family that had come to the door. So they were present, they were nearby. Now, it very well may be the case as well. And again, whether you look at any translation you choose, I've tried to look at probably 10 or 15 at least of the most common that are used, many of which are fairly accurate or even very accurate in some cases. None of them can make a clear determination as to who this group was that made the statement. Again, King James speaking, New King James being very similar to that, reading it again says, And when his friends heard of it, they went out and laid hold on him, and they said, He is beside himself. Now, whether that's the group that said, Hey, he's beside himself, and his family said, Hey, look, we'll go get him. We'll pull him out of this. We'll get him uh, in a safe place. or We'll get him away from preceding context from these thrones of these multitudes of people. Or whether it's the fact that his family uh, got among themselves and said, Look, he's beside himself. He's not acting like he needs to act. Someone needs to intervene and needs to pull him from this and kind of get to the bottom of what's going on in his mind or at least what his will is. Now, I don't know that it matters either side of that. Whether it's a group of enemies, a group of friends, a group of foes, a group made of family members or whatever, whatever that would be, whoever it was that said this about him, that he's beside himself, some other group or at least a group from that group intervened in that. And the, I think the principle being the fact that if you ever, and if you're a Christian and you've experienced this, I, I kind of uh, sympathize and empathize with you, but if you ever get to a place in your life, and I hope that we all are really, where you are doing the will of God, God's way, where you're following the example of Christ, where you're trying to serve God to the nth degree, for lack of better terms, there will be those who look at you and say, well, he or she, they're just, they're out of their mind. I mean, they're just crazy. They're just wrapped up in this religious stuff. They're wrapped up in this church stuff or whatever they might refer to that as. They're wrapped up in something. They're tangled up in some cult. It's been an accusation that's been made before. And that goes for the fact that simply by those who are faithful to the Word of God oftentimes get accused of that. Now, we know there have been plenty of religious, true-to-life religious extremists through time for which you could probably say, well, they're out of their mind, they've lost their mind, they're beside themselves, they're crazy, whatever term you would put to that. But that is oftentimes simply just accused on those of us who are just simply 
trying to serve God. Does the world typically accept us if we try to live to the best of our ability exactly as the scriptures say? Does the world typically accept that? I think that boils out in the context that's going to come up, really. And the divisions that he talked about, the houses being divided against himself, Satan himself being divided against himself. I think as a whole, the world looks at us, and Peter tells us this, is recorded in 1 Peter 4 and verse 4, wherein they think it's strange that we run not with the same excess of right doing what? You familiar with that verse? Speaking evil of you. And of course, we're going to be spoken evil against for serving God, period, but that may especially be more, more noticeable or, more, or better well seen or sensed when we're doing it the best that we can. You know, you can live the Christian life, in, and I'm using that term loosely, someone can live the Christian life and claim to be a Christian and never once be persecuted for that. Why? Because they may keep it to themselves. It may be that hidden lamp under a bushel or, or something like that. It may be the case that there, we or whomever that would be is, are just not simply living that life out. It's something that's more professed than performed. And that may be the case. But Jesus, we know, obviously, he's living that prime example, that sinless example. And in the context of what has happened from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up into this point, he has shown his dominion or his power over pretty much everything in this world already. Whether it be the powers over the demons that he was able to put out, which he's going to talk about that again in this context. Whether it be the powers over disease, the powers over the doctrines that he had, the word that he spoke, or if you will, the powers over a sin itself. He's already taken one man and said, thy sins be forgiven. And so he is already having authority over all of those things. And so if you want to put a couple of things in your margin, we'll turn to them for just a moment. They'll be very familiar before we move into the next context. But a couple of things you can put in your margin here is just kind of nailed down. One of them comes up very commonly, Matthew chapter 28. You'll be familiar with it, but let's turn to it anyway. Look at Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. Now we know the statement that is made, Matthew 28, 18 and 19, we're about to read and review it, is something that Jesus said concerning himself. And it's something he said toward the end of his life, the close of his life, in making sure that not only his apostles and or his disciples knew what they were to do, but making sure they understand the authority under which he did it, and really, in a sense, the authority under which they do much the same. Matthew 28, verse 18, beginning. Notice what Jesus said. You're familiar with it. And Jesus came and spake unto them, watch this, and saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. If you don't have it underlined in your Bible, underline the word power. You're familiar with it. What does the word power mean? Or what is another way of translating the word power right here? All authority. And that's the principle. And so Jesus says that. Then he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things, underline that, Whatsoever I have commanded you, underline that, and lo, I am with you always, even in the end of the world. Underline that phrase, end of the world. Now, in those three verses there's the recorded there, that is Jesus making a statement of his authority. Now, in that statement, just to take it for what it is, if we knew nothing else about him, how is his authority limited in this scripture? 
It's a trick question. It's not. Jesus says, All authority has been given unto me, both in heaven and in earth. Does that mean he has authority over demons? Does that mean he has authority over disease? Does that mean he has authority over the doctrines that he teaches? Does that mean he has authority over the potential for damnation for the souls who fail to obey it? Yeah. All those things. You could go on and on. I put D words together because I could remember them somewhat. But you could put anything in that category that you can consider that could be under the authority or the power of God. And Jesus said, He said, All power has been given unto me. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, if we weren't talking about Jesus, I'll say that again. If we were not, weren't talking about Jesus, would that mean much? You put those words in the mouth of any other human, what's the potential? He stands up, that other human stands up and says, all authority has been given to me. How do you know that's true? First of all, they wouldn't have it, but if they made the statement, how would you be able to know if that's true or not? I would say if that's the case, maybe only time and situations may tell that. And obviously what they would tell is he really doesn't have all the authority he claims to have. No one, earth has that, no one on earth has that type of authority. But you see, I connect this scripture here, there what Jesus said or recorded right here toward the tail end of Matthew 28, along with what he has done, not just in Mark's gospel, but all others. You see, by the time Jesus makes this type of, I would call it a bold statement, to say that all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. By the time he makes that statement, he has done what prior to that statement? He has already proven that. So when you get down to our context here that's listed out and we get to a place where these men, not the one we're talking about right here in verse 21 and, or 20 and 21, but to these scribes in verse 22 that come up and says, okay, he, look, we can't even argue about it. He has done a lot of things. He's done a ton of, you might even call them miracles. And we can't deny that. So what do we do with it? We discount it by saying, well, he's got power. There's no argument he's got power, but, but from whence does his power come? They say from Satan. Yes, sir. Uh, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, he's actually going to demonstrate that authority. Yes. In example after example, whether it's power over the elements or power over the spirit world or power over sickness or power over death. Uh, I'd like for you to talk a little bit more about the point that you and John just made, though. i got to ponder that for a minute. The Jewish scribes, at least, are, are saying that Jesus has power, but that that power is from demonic sources. So they would say, for example, I'm just I'm speaking out loud, trying to get clarity here. If someone was demon-possessed, clearly the demons <coughs> had authority and power. 
trying to do is I'm trying to get my brain around how they would look at what Jesus did for good and yet blame it on demonic forces. That's that's what I'm struggling with. Uh, I, I can I can conceive of the idea of demonic forces hurting someone, but I think that's Jesus's point here in the text. The house divided against itself can't stand, and if Jesus casts out. Well, the trick to your statement for me standing up here is we ain't got there yet. Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's where we're going to hopefully get to, is to discuss some of that as far as why they would be willing to do what they do. I don't know that there is an answer to that. Well, they uh, it, also could have said it did it like Simon the Sorcerer mm -hmm. did his miracle. Which would have been trickery. So and there's, trickery. yeah, trickery. Someone else. It's like any argument today, Which I've often thought about, forgive me, I've often thought about, for example, in John chapter 9, when Jesus heals a man who's born, born blind, the enemies of, of Christ are trying to find a, a, a reason for that. And the question that I've always asked is, is how can they look at the now seeing man and, and draw this conclusion? And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand the mindset of a person who is able to do the good and still attribute that to evil. And you're right, Jesus is going to deal with it. The one thing that we do know about the mindset or the context we haven't touched top side or bottom of yet is those people are lost. Those people and having that mindset that no matter what Jesus is willing to do, whether it be in his body, in his words or his works, no matter what God has done in creation, Jesus being included in that, obviously, and then no matter what even the Spirit has delivered through all these prophets that these men, these scribes, these Pharisees are so well studied in of the law and the prophets, they still stand in denial of the source of those things. And then that brings them around to the fact that he says, look, there's no forgiveness for that. There's no, I call it ungetoverable. This will be often referred to in this context, at least verse 22 and following, the unpardonable sin. It's ungetoverable for the men, actually. It's not God's unwillingness or, un or, or non-ability to forgive, but man's unwillingness to accept. And so uh, class is over then. We hadn't read it yet, but that's the, that's the summary of everything that we're going to say ultimately in this. But... Yes, the scribes, why they would be willing to do that, I don't know other than the scribes and the Pharisees oftentimes connected together, their whole mindset being no matter what we have to do and or say to discredit him, we'll do. Uh, some of those people may have went home. I'm just assuming Nicodemus may have been a part of that group at some point at least, that Nicodemus of John 3, may have ever went home at night and, and couldn't sleep because of that fact, but they were still willing to stand and say whatever they had to say because he was taking away from their perceived authority. So unbelief ultimately is not a lack of evidence, it's a lack of conviction. Right. That's a good way to put that. And there's more than sufficient evidence. I mean, unbelief in God's the same 
Well, yeah, yes. It's there that is the God. But the atheist doesn't believe But there's a little slight difference that obviously we're going to get to in the context between someone that will speak against the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, exactly how that's going to bear out, I'll stand here and tell you right now, 15, 20 minutes in with 15 minutes to go, I don't know. But I know the context helps a lot, and context is key. I showed this to my wife and kids the other night. I don't know how many of you have seen this. You'd have to be on Facebook or some dumb social media to see it. Uh, but I almost started doing a PowerPoint just for this purpose. There's a little sign that's seated in a place, and it says, don't forget to lick the bowl. That's what the sign says, a little cutesy sign. It looks great until you realize it's on the back of a toilet. You see, context matters. And I thought that was a great point that's made. Context matters. And so the statements we're about to go to in the other gospel accounts that parallel exactly with this are found in various contexts that bring out a lot of the proof that can be discovered in it. Jim, I think sometimes we're amazed when we talk to people because we we live our lives by faith and and most of us, most of our lives have done that. And, And when we meet somebody, though, does not truly does not believe. Uh, it's amazing to us how they can see things that we see in such a different way. Mm-hmm. And I believe these people, you know, there's a there's a term in psychology, cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. It's a big term, but it means well, those are conflicting ideas. You're gonna you're gonna come up with ways to justify yourself. Right. And what they're seeing in this man is not what they want to see. What they're hearing from this man is not what they want to hear. They're comfortable with where they are. They don't want anybody him coming along and changing things. And so as they come up with the craziest of things to uh, to have their own uh, peace of mind, mm-hmm. so to speak. And Jesus shows, shows excuse me, the foolishness of such a, a way of thinking. Right. I mean, can I? That Satan battle against himself and survive? Of course not. But the reason why they're doing this is because they don't want, they, they obviously do not want to believe. So they're trying to some, find some way of justifying themselves. Right. And it, it is as such as you're relating it more to us is how many times have we walked away from a discussion or even a Bible study and said in our minds, how in the world do they get that? Or in opposite, how in the world do they not get that? How can they say such horrible things about God? Mm-hmm. It's, when you talk to somebody that is truly an atheist and you want to stand back, uh-oh, like it's about uh, right. something, you know, because some of the horrible things they say God, but it's because their way of dealing with it. Oh, he's got to be a bad. I don't want him part of him. You know, it's yeah. horrible. Look at the, all the disaster, disease, and how can, how cruel he is. And, you know. So this is how they're dealing with it. Yeah. Uh, for themselves, for their own self-survival. That's right. All right. Great thoughts, and that builds our context up. I think very well. All of that together, uh, beginning in verse twenty-two. And the scribes, again, they're often referred to alongside of the Pharisees and such. 
and the scribes came down from Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if that's a major point, but the fact that they have come from the center of religious knowledge and authority of that day. Now, they also consider themselves to be that standard, but they come from that standard. But they came down from Jerusalem and, and said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils he casts out devils. That's what they said about him. That's their accusation that was made. Now, I've looked at several different things. I think it all amounts to the same thing, but whether or not you realize or, or consider that Beelzebub is a reference to Baal or you reference it to being several other supposed gods of the old or the prince of the gods or prince of the devils is the phrase that's actually listed out here. It makes no difference. It's what they did not say he was. They did not say he was God, which he was. They did not give him credit for having the authority that he actually did. They called him something that was an antithesis. That's a big James Rogers word. Some of you don't know James Rogers, but he taught me that. The antithesis, the back opposite of that. And he, that is Jesus, called unto him and said, and he called unto him and said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's the first principle. I would word it more like this, not that I could improve on what Jesus said, but why would Satan cast out Satan? If you're aggravated at me or you're somehow offended at me and that I have recently in the context cast out devils or demons, why would I do that? Next principle, next argument, he says. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Has that ever happened in history? Literally? Yeah, I mean, that nearly destroyed the United States of America as we know it. Um, you could think of the Civil War and that. Of course, that's going on every moment of every time in some place in the world. So if a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Next thing, if a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. You ever experienced that? Family relationships, you know, homes get in turmoil. Families get in turmoil. What happens if that can some not, cannot in some way be corrected or at least come to agreement? Won't stand. Then he says this, verse 26, they're all the same. I mean, he's just illustrating differently. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. So Satan can't even do that. It can't happen in the first illustration. It can't happen if Satan were to cast himself out. It can't happen if a kingdom was divided. It can't happen if a house is divided. It couldn't happen if even Satan himself tried to divide himself because he would put himself to an end. And then he says in verse 27, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. Now, you read against that, uh, that statement there listed in verse 27 and you say well that I mean that that makes sense if, if you go to break into someone's house if you're a thief and you go to break into someone's house in the nighttime what should you do first if you want to get out safe and alive you better find a way to handle them to take control of them and we say well again that's just yet another principle he gives it's very similar very much like the others with this exception. 
back up and just, I've got lines drawn. I'm going to point at those lines here, though, in my Bible. Back up and remember how this started. When the scribes came to him, accused him of doing these things after the power of Beelzebub or the prince of the devils, he called them unto him and he spake to them in, what's that next word? Parables. How do we refer to a parable oftentimes? We, we give it the grade, the grade school answer, the earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I like to, I won't say improve on that, but I like to be clear on that in my mind. It's an earthly truth laying beside a heavenly truth. You see, stories could be fanciful. Stories could be completely not even possible. You know, you have, you have books and you have movies, some that are fiction, some that are non-fiction, some that are true, some that are not. Some that are based on actual situations or you see some disclaimers, you know, the following program is based on real events or something like that, and some that are not. When Jesus spoke in parables, if you watch him closely, everything that he says absolutely could and sometimes does happen. And I don't know, and this is my disclaimer, I don't know, so I wouldn't argue, but I would assume in many cases that he spoke in parables, he either had that implement nearby that he could reference or point at or use for that illustration, and or he knew exactly that the people were well aware of what he spoke of. I think the latter is certainly true. He knew that they knew what he meant. All right? But when he spoke in parables, he did place an heavenly truth beside an earthly truth, or vice versa, I should say, an earthly truth beside that heavenly truth. When Jesus speaks here of no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man, obviously an earthly principle there, or truth. It's also heavenly. Who had bound the strong man already? Jesus had done that. His casting out of the demonic and the other things that he did up and leading up into the point of all the things that he did, he bound the strong man, you could reference as Satan, in doing that. So Jesus argues to them, you know what? Maybe you're right about all this. Maybe, maybe it's true that, that it, or it is true that a man cannot be divided against himself. The kingdom cannot be divided itself. Satan cannot be divided against himself. But it's also true that I bound that strong man. Now, the argument could come in, well, how much literal authority did Satan have? And if any authority that he did have, how much of that did God give him? And you can chase rabbits down holes and down every street in the county doing that. But whatever authority they might even claim, Satan had. Jesus had more. Jesus stood over that. Yes, sir. Can I disagree? <laughs> if you'd like. Uh, that, you know, I, I think I've always thought, you know, Jesus talking about binding Satan. You know, he's, he's the strong one. That's, I, I think he's just the opposite. I think he's saying if Satan wants to defeat me, he's got to beat me first. Well, that could be very well I true. Think he's saying, you, if you want to defeat if Satan, I mean, you know, Satan doesn't want me to win. He would certainly not, I mean, he would bind me. He would not allow me to do these things that are obvious uh, signs that I'm from God. And he's not doing that. That doesn't make any sense, does it? So I can't be doing anything by Satan. It'd be self-defeating for Satan to do that. He's got to bind me. 
which you could not do. Yeah. I've always thought the other way until somebody showed it to me. Yeah. Yeah. Both ways make a lot of sense to me. And either way, Jesus ultimately has authority in both. He can do it by Satan, power Satan, because that would be self-defeating for Satan. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Satan would not be divided against himself, preceding verse, in that. Now, here's the point that we're too late to get to, but you can ponder over next week. And again, I, I hate to reference the little funny illustration, but keep that in mind as you ponder that next week. Context matters. But the next two verses that are often misunderstood, as a matter of fact, I, I did jot down an outline. I hadn't touched top, side, or bottom, but we're going to talk about the problems. We're going to talk about the passages. And we're also going to talk about the positions of those passages. Because so many times things are uh, found outside of their used, misused outside of the context. Look at verse 28 and 29 to begin pondering for next week. Verily I say unto you, all sins have, have, shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he hath an unclean spirit so that's the point that's where people get the idea at least of the ungetoverable the unpardonable the unforgivable uh, sin and that's not the only place by the way there are other records that we're going to see throughout scripture that show such uh, mainly the three that are found in the gospel accounts matthew mark and luke and as I said way in the beginning of that, each of those contexts will give us just a little bit more information as to what was going on in the life of Jesus at the time these statements are made, and even more so, what were the accusations against him at the time these statements were made. Of course, the Mark's account right here is very similar to the others. I'm not saying that it's any different, but the accusation is, you know, he's, he's out of his mind, or he has the devil or he works by the power of the prince of the devils, and so forth. So be looking at that for next week. I'll give you those parallels, however. Uh, you can look in Matthew chapter 12, read verse 30 and 31, then expand the context. You can also look in Luke chapter 12, look at verses 8 through 10, but then expand the context. So that's the two right there, Matthew 12 and Luke 12, but be sure that you expand the context beyond what is actually said because those are brief accounts. And then we'll look at one in John that is not a direct parallel, but where the same principle is applied. It's not a parallel in the fact that John makes no attempt to try to record these events, but at the same time he does make reference to the fact that there's a sin that is also unto death. Now John just doesn't take, uh, if you will, the, the time or the reason to explain like the other Gospels do. One thing that you may have noticed already, and you may have heard this term, may not have used it, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often very different from John's account, but they often connect more closely because they're what is known as the synoptic gospels. They kind of, they make a summary of things. John kind of stands to the side, not that he doesn't prove a tremendous amount about Jesus, particularly about Jesus being deity, but he kind of stands to the side of that. So that's why when I have put the charts up or when I have given you these parallels, and I've tried to do that all the way through the book so far, 
a lot of times you'll see or maybe say to yourself, well, why does Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about this? But John hardly mentions any of it. Uh, John is one of the rarest ones to mention at least this part of Jesus' ministry because that's not his main purpose. Anything else? <clears throat> 